Welcome back to Mindful of Everything, after a month's break due to my educational commitments. I'm your host, Agrita Dandrell, and I'm very excited to be back to produce content addressing environmental and social issues that, when answered, aid us to continue on our journeys for ecological and community healing. In today's episode, I had a very inspiring conversation with Dr. Linda Bender, an animal advocate, educator and author of the wonderful book, Animal Wisdom, Learning from the Spiritual Lives of Animals. From being exposed to the compassion and wonders of animals from a very young age, Linda has gone on to spend her professional and personal life supporting and initiating programs aimed at promoting the symbiosis of human and non-human animals. This episode discusses a lot of areas regarding animal rights protection. However, Linda strongly believes that reconnecting to the natural world requires a reconnection to our spiritual selves in order to unlearn teachings of human dominion over nature and relearn indigenous teachings of spiritual connections with every entity on this planet. Let's start off by asking you what really inspired you to embark on this beautiful journey of advocacy for non-human animal rights. Thank you for that question. Um, I can honestly tell you that I've been asked many times, when did this start for me? When did this begin? And I've thought about it a lot, but really there was no time before. I came into this life with a very intimate connection with the natural world. And that began when I was a very, very young girl, when I would go out and play in nature and, you know, we had a dog. But it was particularly out in uh, my parents' backyard when I connected with animals. And I just knew that they were not other than humans. They were their own beautiful life forms, but we were equal and we were connected. And I thought everyone felt that way. I soon learned that that wasn't true. I thought, well, this is a special relationship that I have with animals. I then learned later on that my path was not just between me and the animals, that it expanded to include humans. And we can go into that story if you wish. But so I've always had that ability and that sensing of the oneness of all life. So where do you think this commodification of animals really started from? And why did it start? Why has it continued on to modern society? And also this perception of humans being the Mm. dominant species and non-human animals being the subordinate species. So where do you think this really has started from and how can we kind of get out of this mindset? Right. Well, that's a really important and a big question. (laughs) We can write a (laughs) book on that one. Yeah, definitely. You know, very, very, let's get to the basics. You know, if, if you and I have spent time with indigenous cultures who never experience that separation yeah you know one can see that some cultures have never lost that connection but Mm -hmm. what's happened to us in western culture well it's multifactorial you know we once believed in animism that was sort of the way of of our culture animism meaning you know all life has soul 
But then we started with Darwin. You know, Darwin is an example with Mm -hmm. evolution. And frankly, I never understood why evolution means that we aren't, you know, a spiritual on a spiritual path. So that doesn't work for me. And then, of course, the Industrial Revolution where we started to focus on materialism, yeah, you know, and then religions, the traditional religions that really stated, I mean, in the Bible, you can see where it says we are dominant and the earth is here for us to use and quote abuse. So, you know, we claimed dominion over everything else on the planet. And so all these things, everywhere people turned, this was what was being taught. Mm -hmm. And then we have the materialist science who, you know, are saying that everything is machine. Nothing's alive. Nothing's real. It's all meaningless. And science is the only thing. Material science is the only thing we can believe in. And for some odd unknown reason, human beings have a consciousness. Now, you know, we have made progress, but, you know, still mainstream science is pretty skeptical. So you have worked with indigenous communities and you just mentioned how indigenous communities have never really seen humans and animals as separate, even the environment. You know, we're all part and parcel of the environment. And that's something that indigenous communities continue on to advocate for. So do you think that they helped you in understanding this connection between humans and non-humans or do you think you found that connection way before your work with these communities well i i've always had that connection but i actually i have a dear friend he's passed over now bob randall who's an aboriginal elder and i spent a lot of time with him and his work in their beliefs the aboriginal beliefs and i also specifically before i wrote my book i said i i'm going to go to because i had been working in africa and i wanted to spend time with the san people who are um living in the kalahari desert in south africa mm-hmm. and what i learned from them was about deepening that connection even more than I already had. I also worked with Credo Mutwa, who also has crossed over now. It's an expansion. In other words, I believe these connections, we're all intuitive. We're all psychic. We're all able to connect with other levels of consciousness. But it's like a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. So most people are walking around completely almost in a coma. (laughs) when you start to those filters you know come off wow everything changes and so there's no end it continues and continues and I remember one quick point about being with the San people and I thought you know I'm pretty good with animals and all he he had this one beautiful man had me lie down on the on the dirt there this red dirt soil and put my ear, press my ear to the ground. And he said, now listen to the ants below. You couldn't see anything. There was nothing. (laughs) Listen to the creatures below. So he was stretching me even more. That is so beautiful. It's like 
we have so much to learn from these communities, but it's sort of ironic because we were those communities before. We've just kind of lost that connection over time. So I think it is really important to kind of go into these communities, listen to the members, see the interconnectivity between, like you said, the material world and the spiritual world. A major reason why I actually reached out to you, Linda, is because of your work in spiritualism and conservation as well. Spiritualism is a massive part of my life, but I do understand, like you said, there are the skeptics of it, you know, especially those that believe in conventional science systems. They don't, they won't want to kind of see the connection between materialism and spiritualism. So how do you go about explaining this concept of connecting all of the beings and non-beings, the non-living world, all being connected? How do you kind of explain that to people that just don't want to understand it? Right. Well, they, you just said something very important. There are people who don't want to understand. And you're not going to change that. And yeah. um, a friend of mine, Rupert Sheldrake, he's, and he's in Britain, talks about pseudo-skeptics. Because the people who refuse to listen are actually pseudo-skeptics. Because skeptics want to learn. You know, skepticism is good. I'm a skeptic. But I, it, it makes me want to learn more, dig in more. It keeps my mind open. And I've always been that way mm-hmm. in, in a combination of science and spirituality. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a yearning. Uh, what's next? What's next? So pseudo-skeptics are not real skeptics. They think they know all the answers already. They're not interested in learning. They're interesting in the dogma because science, real science, is not a dogma. It's it's a way of learning. Science is is a path to learning. It's not a dogma. So the people who refuse to learn, well, they are what they are. But even skeptics and atheists now, I understand they have an atheist uh, meditation groups that go on. So I don't know what they're meditating to the right brain to the left brain. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's um it can be a tough road, be a tough road. But I have found over the years that the best way to teach people because I do teach, but I teach people who sign up and want to open and want to learn. And what I have found is the best way to open people and it's not learning new stuff. It's about forgetting. It's about letting go of garbage that's been in the brain for so long. And it's allowing yourself to enter into experience. So what I do, and it's it's brilliant because people then experience for themselves. It's like love, right? I could explain to you or you could explain to me forever what love means. But until you experience it, you know nothing. And so yeah, you know, we can read the books, we can be taught, we can learn in our heads, but it's really through personal experience. And that's where I get a tremendous joy of helping people open to those things that are already there. It's a reawakening. Yeah. Do you think that people that, like you said, are atheists, they don't exactly believe in a religion? Do you think it's harder for them to understand the concept of spirituality? Because I do believe that spirituality goes well beyond religion itself. It is a massive realm that I can't 
personally explain of course obviously there will be the skeptics but there will be people that are not too no. sure about it but they do want to learn about it so do you help people understand that regardless of their religious backgrounds yeah and their beliefs i do and i think that uh part of the reason there's so much skept we'll call them skeptics about spirituality is they don't really they've not experienced spirituality they're not they're not mystical meaning they've not had the personal experiences to understand spirituality so they base their criticism a lot on some of the aspects of organized religion that are really kind of goofy right and they're easy to put down or disbelieve and that's true i believe that's true i think organized religions have just is not what my spiritual journey is about so it's 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 kind of a dodge and weave around those issues that you know we really don't have to argue Definitely. with some of the concepts of organized religion that are just based on controlling the masses right it's more it's the what i help people understand is uh, a mystical journey it's a personal journey that you don't need anything else there is nothing else you need to do to connect and go along on your spiritual journey it's you and your soul and your spirit and con- you connecting with all life and that for me is a way for me to teach people it's in nature it's connecting with animals because they are the conduit the average person once they've had a loving relationship with an animal they're not questioning whether that animal can think or feel So it's how we just carry on in that journey and and being out in nature it's a tree it's a flower or it's an animal that's the doorway and that's the doorway through that mystical personal interconnection that we can all experience definitely I feel like most people are nervous about spirituality because it doesn't have a set structure like you said oh, yeah. it's an experience led belief system if you want to put it that way the fact that there's no structure because we're so used to structure in modern society yeah. i think that is what stops people from exploring it further but if people just understand that it right. is just about your experiences and how you connect with other things in the world then it just puts a little less pressure on those people that are kind of entering that phase yeah and i think people tend to think uh, people have said this to me you know oh well you have this special thing i don't have or you know other people are yeah. different i think that's not true at all mm-hmm. um and so what what is so beautiful is when people realize that and not because i tell them but because we go out in nature or or we meditate you know there are different things one can do but the most powerful is how simple is sitting with a tree krishna murti the great uh philosopher used to say sit with the tree look at a tree but don't see the tree with the name see this as another living thing connect to it forget what you know mm-hmm. get out of your mind and just connect with this being through presence it happens every time <laughs> and then it's so wonderful when people say oh my god <laughs> so crazy wow you know and then then they go from there and it's beautiful and they're never the same they're never the same kind of going back to um my question on you know the whole commodification of animals 
So like you mentioned, your work has extended to Asia and Africa, and these two regions have had extensive histories, and it's continuing now, of poaching, um, wildlife trafficking. So how do you help local communities that have engaged in these practices for so long to kind of step out of that and understand that not only is this having a negative ecological impact on their ecosystems and on the animals themselves, but also it is an unethical practice. I understand that lots of communities will be kind of closed off, especially when Western, you know, researchers, um, scientists come into their regions and tell them that, you know, this isn't exactly right from a scientific perspective, spiritual perspective, ethical perspective. So how do you help those communities to understand that right. this isn't sustainable? That's absolutely true. Um, the problem is, the issue is, if you tell someone who kills an animal, whether it's, you know, the low man on the totem pole of the poaching, you know, the wildlife trafficking trade ends up down at the low man on the totem pole who just needs to make a tiny bit of money to feed his family. Or yeah. I, I think, you know, if you say to them, you know, this is really not right, it's unethical, or these animals, you shouldn't be killing them. Well, that doesn't go too far because they're trying to feed their families. They're trying exactly to keep their children from starving. So to end these problems, and many good people are working on this, um, South Africa, East Africa, I know, you have to work with the people. Yeah. You have to work with the communities to, to provide other ways. For example, one reason sort of these rage killings, because there's shared environment. And if an elephant is or a lion is hunting or trying to competing with the space and say a lion kills a goat or whatever happens, you've got to deal with that situation. And certain, for example, the, the bees, they put fences, but they put stations where elephants are terrified of bees. And so mm -hmm. you work with the community to set that up. So, okay, we don't have to kill the animals we can work together to solve your issues so they don't come and destroy your area and we don't have to kill them. So we come up with creative ways to deal with these situations. But you know, the problem is habitats are being destroyed. They have nowhere to go. You know, the, so there's, it's multifactorial. But when you teach people, there are ways to live together. It does work. It does, it, it does work because they don't really want to kill the animals. They don't want, they want to live together. They understand tourism uh, and the need. So it's education yeah. and working together with the animals and the local people. Mm -hmm. You can't do it without the local people. So from your experience, are these countries actively investing in making sure that their wildlife is protected whilst also protecting communities? Are there any community projects being kind of invested in on a large scale? Oh, sure, sure, everywhere. But, you know, funding is an issue. And poaching, poaching is tough. And what you have to do is cut down. First, first you have to, you, to prevent poaching. You have to have boots on the ground, right? You have to have the guards, the yeah. people protecting the animals. And you have to uh, work at the borders. You have to have controls, government controls. But you have to stop the the need you have to stop the market and big stride was made in china when they a lot of people 
worked hard to get uh, awareness in China. You know, it's not really cool. Uh, you know, elephants actually die. Um, yeah. And people would say things like, wow, I didn't know elephants were killed for this tusk. I thought they just shed the tusk. So education, education. And to shut down the market for imports, you know, to these countries. So, yeah, it's the drug trade, the human trafficking trade, and the animal trafficking trade are the three big horrors that we have to deal with. But wonderful people are working and doing great things, and we're tracking the animals. So, so there's a lot going on, but we've got to stop the market for it, and we got to stop the corruption. Like you said, it's just multi-layered. There's just so many layers to these issues. Um, but like you said, there are yeah. people already working at each layer, so need to keep on going at it and hopefully in the process people do learn and and the other thing we have to remember is with this environmental uh well luckily we're in our new administration heartbreaking uh what was happening before but i think we're trying to move in the correct direction again but we've got a lot of work to do and a lot of the people that i work with have worked with in the past are People like me or like you who are thinking there's nothing I can do. I'm not powerful enough. I'm just one person. And I tell people, you know, you got to be a rebel with a cause. And when you have a cause, you got to work for it. And you got to learn to make your gifts your strengths. Uh, I teach people to make their gifts their strengths and not a weakness. And we need everybody we can get in the field, you know, uh, Everybody has their gift and everybody has some things that they can share. And I help, I try to help people, you know, empower themselves and to do that. Yes. And to transform their negativity, to transform the criticism that they receive into creative ways. I've seen from your website that you've also worked with children. So do you think that children are kind of more accessible when it comes to changing people's mindsets? Totally. And everywhere in the world. And one of the uh, areas, for example, in Africa, it's the, the children, educating the children to this loving relationship and opening their heart to the value of the animals and living together and honoring all life in the connection of life. They get it. <laughs> they totally get it. They're the biggest champions. And here too, you know, I, I think in our, 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 our culture, it's the kids who get it. I mean, I remember once, well, more than once, but this one particular gal, she was seven years old and she came to one of my lectures. Where was it? It was in um, Cincinnati. And afterward I had a book signing and this little girl waited because everybody was in line and I was signing books and she waited and waited and I could see her and she came over with her dad and she just told me how she was going to take care of the animals and the cats, the wild cats. And she was amazing. On. This was the most astonishing young woman. She had no doubts, you know, they don't have the doubts. And so what we need to do is affirm that, Yeah, you know, so it just, it just grows. Amazing. And they're wonderful. I love working with kids. Yeah. 
I am very interested in hearing about your opinions on zoos. I've personally been very conflicted with the concept of zoos and I have seen quite negative examples of them. Um, you know, animals being confined in spaces, being left alone. There have been so many accounts of animals being depressed as well. So what is your take on zoos and can we kind of make them obviously more ethical and kind of like support mechanisms for animals? Yeah. Yes. Um, everything you just said about zoos is correct. Um, horrible situations with depression, with animals being put alone, elephants, giraffes. It's just wrong. And there are so many zoos that need to go away. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are some zoos that I personally worked with. Well, the Bronx Zoo, for example, does amazing, amazing work. Uh, all around the world, uh, funding, programs, you name it. They have programs all over the world, research teams, really, really helping animals, and they're a good place. Another example in the Cincinnati Zoo, actually, I moved there once to work in the zoo. I realized that I didn't want to be a zoo vet because we were low men on the totem pole, and it it could be very political with the animals, and they didn't necessarily, so that's Mm -hmm. not great. However, they have a research team there. And I'll just give you an example. Their research people, for example, did the first um, artificial insemination of a Sumatra rhino. And I mean, that's a big deal. So as far as the research and the funding and that aspect of the zoos, that's a good thing. But the average zoo, I'm sorry, uh, you know, animals should not be confined and and if they do have to be then let's do it right i mean zoos going to zoos i'll tell you a quick story about that when i was a very little girl my um, i grew up in new jersey and my father must have been a local zoo anyway my father was so much on board with me and my connection to animals and he was so excited he said i'm going to take you to see the animals i'm going to take you to the zoo I went, oh, my God, Dad. And I remember approaching this place, whatever it was. And my father was holding my hand, and we were going. And the closer we got to this, what looked like an enormous uh, truck-sized cage, bars, which was probably maybe 20 by 10, and I was getting closer and closer to this astonishingly beautiful Black Panther that was caged in this thing and it was pacing back and forth, back and forth. And as an intuitive and an empath, the closer I got to this animal, everything that animal was feeling was in me. And I started screaming and crying, screaming to my father. The closer we got, I said, I was screaming and I was saying, daddy, daddy, get him out of there, get him out of there. He wants to be, it was horrible. It was a horrible experience for me. My father, actually, we had to leave. He, I was hysterical. Yeah. We didn't know at the time. We're better, but we're not there yet. Yeah. I mean, that was another question that I wanted to ask because lots of people say, well, you know, not everyone has an access to a safari or, you know, something like that. And zoos do provide that sort of contact point between children and animals. So that is like kind of like a major argument that people give that, you know, at least zoos are giving that sort of interaction. But like you said, it was so traumatizing for you. And I'm pretty sure that will be traumatizing for so many other children as well. 
um, that are a bit a bit more mature in that sense. Yeah, but more sensitive too. But also yeah. uh, on that same argument, taking a child to see an animal can to see an animal confined like that is that saying that's okay? Is that saying exactly. that's normal? No, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, I don't I don't agree with that. There are other yeah, people. no, same. Yeah, let's go out. You know, let's go out to the sanctuaries. Let's go out to the wild. Let's go look at the birds in the mm. trees. Let's go. You know, look look around at nature, living as it's meant to live. Uh, I don't think an animal should be caged for the pleasure of anybody, any human being. And I feel like schools have a massive role to play in this, especially because I've been to zoos just because of my schools. They would take us there. So, yes, schools really need to play this kind of role in helping children understand that it is. it might be sad that you can't see a lion in person, but so long as that lion is not being caged and, you know, confined in a space and being abused, then that is better. So, right. In that way, children won't feel kind of inquisitive to go to a zoo and see a confined animal. Sure. And let's learn about an animal in, uh, out in the wild. Read the books, see the videos, you know, see the education. Yeah. You know, I mean, with technology the way it is today, there are programs that are trying to be put in schools and some are. I know there's an underwater program. You don't have to go to see a dolphin stuck in a tank somewhere. They can, exactly. there are, um, there's a program where the divers will go in, in nature and they're filming and they're teaching. You don't have to have a creature confined. Uh, there's so many more creative ways to do it. And you know what? If you don't see, if a child doesn't see a lion in captivity, is that, is that a problem? No. <laughs> is that going to affect the development? No. You don't need to <laughs> exactly. do that. No. You know. Teach the child about the, the, the beauty of preserving the animal in its natural habitat. And then we can show the, the films in the school so much better, so much better. I get excited just thinking about it because I know people are working hard to do these things. Yeah. So you're teaching, you're teaching the connection of all life. You're teaching um, on a spiritual level that interconnectedness, that caring, that compassion. And you're teaching about science. And you're teaching about environmentalism. Boom. There you go. <laughs> You've also started your own pet therapy program. Could you kind of explain how that goes about? And does the therapy extend to the pet owners as well? You know, kind of helping them to understand their animals, um, the animal companions on a spiritual level. Yes, yes. I remember back in the day, I started one of the first pet programs and it was called, well, there was no name. It was just me and a girlfriend and we took a, a motley crew of animals down to an inner city home for people who were, they had a his, history of mental illness and they couldn't make it on their own and it otherwise would be homeless, but it was a residential situation. And I remember it was a big door and we arrived there and knocked on the door Someone had told them that people were coming. And so this big strapping man opened the door and said, the pet club is here. (laughs) And and we said, well, that's our name. (laughs) Um, And so I just went in with my friend and the animals, only equipped with what I knew to be true 
about the love and the connection between humans and animals. And it was the most extraordinary experience. There were people there, uh, one man in particular, I'll never forget him, how he just, I brought my cat Pumpernickel and I put Pumpernickel on his lap. He was a very gentle soul, but he was in his own world. And when that cat was on his lap, he just, it was like he, a light bulb was turned on and smiled. And he started talking about uh, an animal he had as a child. And it brought tears to my eyes because it was an instant healing, an instant connection there. And this happened time and time and time again. And I remember when I started that program, people kind of looked at me like, what, what? Okay, Linda, well, you go have fun and do your thing. I was on a board. It was, I was on a mental health board. But it's continued through the years to be the most popular program. And as we know, there's so many uh, programs like this now going to hospitals, going all over. Um, so it's taken off in, because it had to. So I'm not directly involved with that anymore because I'm now doing all these other things and writing, speaking and teaching. But it's it's amazing that that yeah. healing, it's a healing. Do you think that animal therapy should be in as many PTSD programs and trauma healing? Do you think animals should really play a major role? Therapeutic animals? Yes, I do. I do. There are programs here with uh, vets, uh, military vets, mm-hmm. and they their lives are often saved because they have an animal. I know several people who have those programs and they tell the stories of how these uh, vets who come back from war and they're so traumatized. I've also seen in the U.S. after some of these mass shootings in the schools with the little kids, so traumatized. There have been examples of only the dogs, only a dog could pull a child back into speaking again. Amazing. I just think dogs should be allowed in schools anyway. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think in all spaces, uh, workspaces, yeah. wherever Workspace possible. Is, there have been studies done that have shown that in offices where animals are allowed to be part of the crew, yeah, they're, they're more productive. They're happier. They keep, the people get along better, and there's more. Yeah, they're more productive. So it's all good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, now my mom's working from home, but she, her boss, always bring in their pet. Like whenever they would be super stressed, and you know, she would walk past. Um, it was a golden retriever. She would kind of walk past, and then you know, their attention would just kind of divert for a bit. They'll pet her, they'll feed her something, and then it's so beautiful. I don't think words can describe how important animals are. Yeah, yeah, I know. Even in just everyday life, like my dog, I have an 11-pound poodle mix. She is just laser-focused love missile. I mean, boom, people go crazy. And it's it's (laughs) fun. I would be carrying her in an airport, you know, and just random strangers. You know how people are in airports. They're all busy and they have these serious looks on their face. Yeah. I look at at my dog, Luna, and it's suddenly, oh, oh, (laughs) total strangers smiling. Yeah. So, yeah. We need more of this in the world. 
I mean, whenever I go to the park kind of for like a fresh a breath of fresh air and I see the animals and the dogs, um, it just feels so much better. I feel like that's the main reason why I go to the park these days because I know people will be walking their dogs and you'll see the birds, etc. It's just Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 it's beautiful. Since you touched on airports, I've always been confused how people can take pets on. So lots of people say yeah. it's actually really unethical how to put some animals I think bigger dogs especially into like another space I have no idea because I don't have a pet but right. yeah so what's your take on that is is that right well I don't advocate anyone to travel with an animal that goes put under they say it's okay but and you don't hear about it but there's a lot of uh, animals that die being transported underneath as cargo. They have that special places, ventilation. Often there's um, fatalities. If you absolutely have to travel with your animal checked in like that, don't do it in the extremes of weather, for example, because when they take an animal before they load and when they take the animal off the plane, they can die of heat exposure and or cold. Okay. So if you have to do it, don't do it in extreme weather. But too many horrible stories traveling with your pets underneath. I mean, I like the idea that small animals can come on the plane, but there's been so much there's been so much yeah. abuse that they've cut back on that. Now I know they just did in the US. Certain animals are just not I I'm not sure. Well, there aren't many people flying right now with animals, but uh, I used to fly with my little dog all the time, but I'm not sure what the regulations are going to be now. But definitely, I don't recommend putting an animal underneath as cargo for traveling. Drive or do it if you have to, shortest route possible, and do it in a more mild climate or time of the year if okay. possible. It would be lovely if we could wrap up the episode to talk about of course, the importance of animal spirituality and kind of exploring it a bit more. We have touched on it throughout the whole episode, but you have an amazing book that I am going to read as soon as I get time, really on the top of my list of books to read. And I'm really sure that you've discussed so many important points of animal spirituality, their wisdom. Uh, The book is called Animal Wisdom, Learning from the Spiritual Lives of Animals. But if you were to pick out a main point, a main thing that you've learned about animal spirituality, Mm. what would that be? Well, it's actually, I have a very simple answer for that because there's so much that animals have to teach us. And when we live with them and we get to know them, they all have this joy of aliveness and this specialness as all species do. And I really think that if I was going to die in a, in two minutes. And I had one thing to say <laughs> from animals. It would be that we as humans, we are the only species that has seceded from the natural world. And what animals would like us to know is that we think we have so many problems and we do, but our main problem, what they really want us to know is that our biggest problem is that we think we are not part of the rest of the functioning, loving, interconnected world. That's our biggest problem. And that's what we need to deal with. 
and animals want us to know that we are really all alive and all one. And we must function in that way if we are to, if any of us are to survive. Thank you so much, Linda, for coming on this show and giving so much of your wisdom about spirituality, the importance of seeing ourselves as biotic components of the environment for sure, but also this network of species and also the non-living world. So thank you so much for coming on, giving us so much information and insight into this wonderful area. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure. May I just close with a quote from Rumi? Yes, May I just, sure, please do. You know, one of the things that animals teach us so much about is uh, how we deal with death and dying. Yes. And how that's affected me. I tell stories about that in my book, actually. But I, there's a quote by Rumi that I think will sum up so much. And he says, goodbyes are only for those who love with their eyes. Because for those who love with their hearts and soul, there is no such thing as separation. And when we deal with animal grief and animal connection, I think this sums it up. If we can all live with love in our hearts and see beyond the physical, what a wonderful world this would be. Spirituality is a topic I've been wanting to discuss on this podcast. But I understand that it's a very difficult topic to address. To have started to discuss it through this episode with Linda, and that too, the interconnection of physical sciences and spiritualism, has become an essential part of this podcasting journey. I hope you've been coping well amid everything that is going on right now. The COVID situation is worsening in other parts of the world. Particularly being an Indian, it's heartbreaking to witness my people suffering, and everyone else, especially those in developing regions. Please remember to give yourself space to heal before re-engaging in these difficult areas. And as difficult as it sounds, please maintain your hope because hope is what is needed to drive actions that can have long-lasting positive impacts. Remember to subscribe to Mindful Everything on your podcast app of choice. Follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And do visit mindfuleverything.com for additional resources and episodes. I hope to see you here again in the next episode.